You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. I'd like to take this opportunity to uh, thank the SDPA for the kind invitation to be part of this meeting. I've not been to your meeting before. Uh, I'm impressed by the turnout. This is great. I understand you have two meetings. Don't start the clock. This is just my time. Uh, go back to 60 seconds, 60 minutes. It's still moving. We're gonna, I'm going to take some more time. So I'd like to thank the group for the kind invitation. Not been here before, maybe I'll come back if they invite me. We'll see how it goes. But I'm struck by the interest, the volume, the attention. This is great. I wish you all well. We have PAs where I am at the clinic. They're good people. They complement what, what, what we do. We lean on them. They lean on us. You're a great asset, and I wish you all well. Uh, enjoy Austin, and here we go again, Cleveland. Greetings once again from Cleveland, home of the Cavs, who didn't do very well last night. They made it interesting in the third quarter, but they faltered. They need to win that next game, or it's over, just like last year. I'd like to see Cleveland do well in sports. I like sports. I don't go to the NBA games that often because it's more fanfare, hoopla, and they're expensive. The Browns, no comment. Oh, it's a struggle. And it's a football town. It really is. Baseball, Indians are mediocre. The Rangers, the Astros are doing far better. Those of you from Texas, um, that's the way it is. So come to Cleveland in the summer. The weather is nice. Change of seasons. Avoid it in the winter, though. I'm sorry. Come in the summer. Avoid in the winter. Okay. The Cleveland skyline. With the Brown Stadium on the right, uh, Society Tower in the middle, Terminal Tower straight in the middle of that tall building. For the longest time, it was the tallest building between Chicago and New York. No longer. Okay, I'd like to move ahead. There we go. Okay, now, for the last hour or so, we covered topics and how to prevent illness, how to prevent infection. And now, for the next 45 minutes to an hour or so, we're going to cover, hopefully, how to treat infections, specifically MRSA infections. So this is an MRSA. We know what that stands for. Methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. I'll just use MRSA or MRSA, an update for it. Uh, I have no conflicts of interest. You heard me say that before. None whatsoever vis-a-vis the upcoming presentation. A little cartoon. It's Mr. and Mrs. MRSA. Just say no, shades of uh, Mrs. Ford way back when. Uh, I wish it were that easy. MRSA, the superbug, and it is indeed a superbug. Increasing prominence, increasing relevance, an increasing problem around the world, but primarily in the Western Hemisphere, the States and uh, South America in the last 10, 20 years, give or take. And if you want to read an interesting book by... uh, Marvin McKenna, this is it. I'm not sure it's worth the tariff. It just beats the topic to death, so to speak. But this is what it looks like clinically, and I'll get into the details. If you look at the MRSA situation globally, and you can kind of look at this, look at the areas in dark gray. And what do you see? You see the states, and you see Brazil. Those are two big chunks in the northern hemisphere, North America and South America. States speak for itself. It is a real problem in this country. But look at Brazil. Doesn't Brazil have enough problems politically? Ay, 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 what's happening there? 
economically, not well. Zika, another one. The Olympics are coming. How do they deal with that? And they're behind schedule. And now MRSA as well. MRSA's been ongoing there for probably the last 20 years, give or take. Rest of the world, sparsely present Scandinavian countries, hardly at all. Europe, present to a degree. But this is a disease that has particular significant significance, relevance, and presence in the Western Hemisphere, the States and South America. If you look at the United States, that's where we live, that's where we work over the last 30 years, give or take, 30, 35 years. Look at the way the numbers are increasing for MRSA infections. And this is MRSA in the hospital primarily, but also in the community. Those numbers are just moving up from 20% incidence to now about 70%, maybe a little bit more, meaning it accounts for about 70% of all such infections within the hospital and even in the community setting, meaning people who are not hospitalized. Just puts it into perspective. So this is a key, important, prominent, pressing public health problem around the world, but primarily in the Western Hemisphere. Not exclusively, but primarily. Wide disease spectrum. It affects hospitalized individuals in ways that we as a group, being dermatologically involved, are unaware or oblivious to. It just doesn't cross our path. But with pneumonia, urinary tract infections, sepsis, bacteremia, secondary wound infections in the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. Increasing prevalence around the world, primarily in the Western Hemisphere, especially in the last 10, 20 years, give or take. With the commonality of travel, you can get on a jet and be in Sri Lanka and back in 48 hours, it becomes a little bit more of a problem for those who travel to the tropics, subtropical areas, and then bring something back. Not necessarily MRSA, might be something else. Might, oh, we won't get into that. It could be scabies, it could be larval migraines, it could be MRSA, there are a lot of things. The working premise here is often MRSA infections are predicated on poor hygiene, close contact, contact with others who aren't kempt and who are somewhat unkempt, uh, not necessarily slovenly, poor social economic groups, but that's part of the play. It happens to all of us. It happens regardless of who you are, where you live, and your job, etc. And the culprit is indeed Staphylococcus, Staph aureus. So how did this all start? Well, once upon a time, we could sit back and read a fairy tale. Once upon a time, there was an organism. Yeah, there was, Staph aureus. Fairly hardy, fairly ubiquitous, very adaptable. It was pervasive. It's all over the place. We all have staph on our bodies right now, whether you like it or not. You can go to your hotel room, scrub a dub-dub with the washcloth and the brush and soap. You're not going to get rid of it all. There will be some there. Okay, until 1960, late 50s, give or take, the drug... I won't say of choice, but the drug for staph aureus infections was methicillin and bingo, became resistant, or certain strains became resistant, and then the, uh, the eponym MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph aureus infections. Worldwide problem, increasing prevalence, increasing morbidity, increasing mortality, and increasing costs attendant to such infections whether it's in the outpatient arena, but even more so in the inpatient arena. Is it the number one health-associated infection around the world? Probably, meaning it's accompaniment to something else going on in a hospitalized patient. They become ill, they become infected. It's usually with MRSA, and it's a real problem in ICUs and emergency rooms, etc. In the USA, it is primarily 
the hospital setting. We are in the hospital to a degree. The hospitalists make rounds, et cetera, but we're going to encounter MRSA in the clinic, in the office, and pediatricians, ER docs, family docs probably encounter it a lot more. The numbers are on the uptick. Um, its presence in community hospitals on a small scale, much more so, probably twice as often in urban centers. And if you look at the ICU population, the intensive care population, uh, 30, 35 years ago, MRSA accounted for just 2, 3, 4% of all such infections in those units. Uh, increased by tenfold in 10 years, doubled in the next 10. It's now accounting for about 70% of all infections in the ICU. Not good. So if they have an infection in the ICU with a patient, it's invariably MRSA until proven otherwise. But the variability, the prevalence, as I mentioned before, Western Hemisphere, but certain European countries, Scandinavia in particular, hardly talked about, hardly encountered. And in other places, Southeast Asia, Japan, the States, very common. MRSA in the States, though, probably occurs a million times a year, at least. That a million episodes that prompt hospitalization. Even though it says 300,000, that number is about 10 years old. It is at least twice that today, and most ID folks say it's probably three times that. MRSA surrounds us, and those infections are because of Staph aureus, and a good number, 125,000 10 years ago, it's probably twice that now. So a quarter of those million folks who are hospitalized probably because of skin soft tissue infections developed in the hospital setting, and they're probably MRSA. Serious, life-threatening infections probably occur at least 100,000 times a year, probably twice that number. This number is off by about 7 to 10 years as well. Deaths, at least 20 to 30,000 per year simply based on MRSA infections. That's a high number for a hospital setting. Mortality linked with MRSA infections, primarily hospital-acquired, about 40%, give or take. And put this into context. There are more deaths from MRSA than there are from HIV disease in this country. It's a big number. More deaths from MRSA than there are from car accidents, uh, lack of vaccinations, et cetera. So MRSA kills. It has the potential. I'm not trying to be the alarmist, but it's a real problem, a real healthcare problem, and treatment is not always as simple as one might think. Morbidity and mortality, if undetected, unknown, unaware, et cetera, what happens? Longer hospital stays. Hospital stays increase by a factor of three, give or take, and they're much longer with MRSA compared to methicillin-sensitive staph aureus by, a back, by about 50%, give or take. Healthcare costs rocket. The cost of treating a MRSA patient in the hospital varies between about ten dollars to $15,000 extra simply because of that and it's primarily a problem with surgical site infections. So folks who go in for surgery, whether it's a hip repair, uh, gastric bypass, whatever the surgery is, either emergent or planned, it's a problem in that setting. And it's not because people are sloppy, they're not wearing gloves, they're spitting into a wound or anything like that. Hell no, it just happens, uh, despite every good attempt at trying to prevent it. Mortality compared to MSSA, Simple garden variety staph infections, markedly higher by a factor of about four, about 40% give or take. Increased likelihood of sepsis, septicemia, bacteremia compared to septicemia, sepsis with 
methicillin-sensitive organisms. And again, surgical sites, surgical sites, surgical sites accounts for the, the, the brunt of it, uh, probably 20, 25%, three times more than its other occurrences in a hospital setting. So all in all, significant impact medically and in the ID arena. This keeps our ID colleagues and friends very busy. Maybe not much of a concern for us if we're not in the hospital that much, more of a concern in the outpatient arena, and I'll get there. Bacteriology, just a slide or two about that. Uh, Staph aureus is a gram-positive organism, uh, over 200 strains. So there are a variety of strains, not that important. And the resistance, that methicillin resistance, is because of something called the penicillin binding protein, PBP, 2A. There's a subset, a gene. Uh, you don't really need to know this, but there are six clones with increasing variability and variability as far as resistance sensitivity to antibiotics. The more potent ones in the hospital setting, or the more potent one, is the secondary clone, Roman numeral two, and the one and the two in the outpatient setting are Roman numeral uh, four and five. I'm doing it for inclusion, the USA 10 and 100 and 200, just a bacteriologic term more than anything else. It's a way of subclassifying MRSA strains. That's all it amounts to. The proteins and the toxins elaborated by Staph aureus are what do the damage. And there are many of them, many of them. Alpha, beta, gamma, delta enterotoxins, um, a staphylokinase toxin, an alpha hemolysin toxin. The one that causes the problems is PVL, which stands for pentone valentine leukocyte. This is the toxin that produces a necrotizing pneumonia, a necrotizing cellulitis. That's the toxin that really does the damage. It makes the site look angry, mean, horrific in many respects. This causes significant morbidity and mortality. So if you see extensive disease, and you know it's MRSA, whether it's a hospitalized patient or someone with a community acquired, and I'll separate them in a moment, it's probably because of this toxin, the PVL toxin. It's the culprit behind it. And when you see that toxin, the TSS toxin, it can produce toxic shock. This is a life-threatening disease, significant morbidity, significant mortality. It's a desquamating dermatitis, sheets of red skin, staphylococcal scalded skin looks just like this. A drug rash could look like this. But this is toxic shock from infection with Staph aureus, that ubiquitous, hardy, adaptable organism on the skin, taking hold, elaborating the toxin, and doing the damage. MRSA infections have been known for a long time, probably 60 years or so for the hospital-acquired type. 60 years. No big deal. They were concerned. The internists, the ID folks, the intensivists, et cetera, not much relevance to us. The community-acquired type has been known for probably the last 30 years, give or take. And that's the type that falls into our domain as dermatologists, PAs in the field of dermatology, healthcare workers in that derm arena, whether it's the clinic, the um, outpatient arena, the office, or the emergency room. Life-threatening infections, I mentioned, primarily linked with two clones, the uh, SCC clone two with hospital acquired and the SCC clone four and five with the community-acquired infections. Just frame of reference. Comparing hospital infections and community-acquired infections, they do differ. Clinically, the presentation is different. 
uh, the clinical presentation in the hospital. It could be sepsis, bacteremia, septicemia, abscesses, but usually inwardly in the GI tract, uh, the lung, etc. But inwardly, meaning visceral abscesses, and on the skin, it's markedly different. Seasonally, a little bit more common in the community during the better weather. People are outdoors a little bit. And when you look at ages, the hospital-acquired infections are typically in folks who are older. They're ill. They're in the hospital for some reason. Something's out of control. They're infected. They have some hip repair, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an older population compared to the younger folks who typically get the community-acquired MRSA infection, the hot lesion, and I'll get to that in a moment. So hospital-acquired infections, the young, the, the, the lung, urinary tract, the GI tract, et cetera. Skin, maybe a third of the time, give or take, in contrast to the community-acquired tract, which affects the skin probably 80, 85, almost 90% of the time, give or take. Environmental sources in the hospital setting, stethoscopes, pages, the workstation, the clinic table, et cetera. All of those are possibility for MRSA. It can live pretty much anywhere. And in the community, the outpatient arena, it's the athlete, it's the shared towels, it's shaving, et cetera. And I'll show those points again a little later. Hospital acquired. I won't dwell on this because we're not that much in the hospital vein, uh, but we do make rounds. Hospital acquired infections, by definition, are those infections that occur 48 hours or more into a hospitalization or in a patient who's been out of the hospital but has, some, has had some medical contact in the last year or so, was ill, was hospitalized maybe briefly eight months ago, comes back in and just develops an MRSA infection. You can link it. You can call it hospital-associated or hospital-acquired based on that history. Strong link with underlying disease. Could be diabetes, could be pneumonia, could be a urinary tract infection. There might be another reason that prompted the visit to the emergency room and ultimate, ultimately admission, but it's MRSA which takes hold. And again, surgery, surgery, surgery. If you see a surgical side infection, think of MRSA first, second, third. Certain strains of hospital-acquired infection are resistant to drugs, multiple drug resistance, and they're usually that same type that virulent type, the clone, Roman numeral two. That's all you have to remember. And part of this is what's now linked to the presence of biofilms. Biofilms, that's a talk in itself. It's a tough talk to give, um, but biofilms often form these little films, obviously in the skin, it's a film, and that allows MRSA, staff in general, to proliferate, to live, to thrive, to replicate, et cetera, and it contributes to uh, multiple drug resistance for it as well. So the presence of biofilms end up being a problem, and they're really true in that setting. Uh, what else about hospital-acquired or associated MRSA? Who gets them? Patients who are in the hospital a long time. You know, it's great if you can be in and out of the hospital, have your appendix taken out, your gallbladder taken out, but that's usually not the case. Folks are usually in now for a while if they're ill, and if they're in the ICU, bingo, you put that together, they're highly susceptible to a hospital-associated MRSA infection. Catheters, dialysis, prosthetic devices, et cetera, also set you up for MRSA infection. Ventilation, you can well imagine, the stuff that goes in, out with a ventilator also sets you up. TPN, to a degree, and again, surgical wounds, chronic wounds, non-healing wounds, the patient with the chronic ulcer, the decubitus, et cetera. 
Antibiotic use doesn't have to be prolonged antibiotic use, even short term, but specifically the cephalosporins and the quinolones. And surgeons like the quinolones. God knows why they should be slapped on the wrist for prescribing. They prescribe them a little too damn much, in my opinion. Proximity to others. You know, we've got the gels, the sprays, we cough into our elbows, we walk away, somebody looks ill, we ignore them, we don't engage in conversation. Sometimes that's good, sometimes it's just not social. Am I going too fast? How are we doing in the front row? Are we okay so far? We're good, okay. These are my fans up here. We just made friends, we're bonding here. Uh, but if you know someone's had an MRSA infection or you go into the ICU, you know, be a little circumspect about what you handle, say, touch, feel, grandma, etc. And what grandma does to you as well. I mean, oh, nice to see you, that, that, that. You may be taking it home. Not good. So you've got to be aware of your surroundings to a degree. And nursing home stays. I mean, nursing home folks are nice. You know, we take care of them. They're usually healthy. Sometimes they're not. But the attention may not be as good there as it might be at home or even in a hospital. So it's prolonged hospital stay, antibiotic use, proximity to others. That's a big one. That's a real big one. Nursing homes, these are all factors that play into the hospital-associated infections. Somewhat repetitive, diseases that set you up for it, urinary tract infections, sepsis, pneumonia, etc. Surgery again. Common reservoirs, other patients, medical personnel. That's us. That's us. Hand washing, put on the gloves, use those spritzes outside the rooms. Just try to spray your own hand and not everybody, everybody else around. But do good hygiene, good cleanliness, and there's a kiddo in the back. Okay, environmental sources, we covered those, okay. This gives you an idea of what it might look like. I mean, here's somebody in a hospital setting, wheelchair, might be just a bump and abrasion from the wheelchair, but it's an ulcer on the lateral aspect of the leg, and then you can see that ulcer on the heel. Doesn't look like much, you say, gee, yeah, it's an ulcer, it's gonna take a long time to heal, let's call the surgeon put on a graft, etc. we'll keep it clean. It looks pretty good. You do a culture here, it's going to grow staph, and it's going to be mercury, uh, it's going to be methicillin-resistant staph aureus. Two more ulcers. You have to think about infection here. Not every ulcer is infected. Not every ulcer needs an antibiotic, blah, blah, blah. But if you see stuff like this, you're going to do a culture, and you really won't be surprised by what you grow. Staph for sure, some other junk probably as well. But if you see something in that MRSA category, bingo. You've got a problem. It's a secondarily infected ulcer wound that deserves your attention, your suggestion about antibiotics or not, and I would probably do it here. Okay. Now we're going to get into the meat, cutaneous infections. Cutaneous infections occur in this country a lot. I've got 12 to 15 million. It's probably 20 million episodes a year. That data is a little old. It's about 10 years old. It's got to be over 20 million. And most of those, the vast majority, are because of staph. Not necessarily MRSA, but staph. And then of those with staph, most of those are MRSA. So we can get other infections with strep, other organisms, et cetera. But think staph, and if you're thinking staph, knee-jerk reaction, the Babinski reflex, you're thinking of MRSA. Most of these infections of the skin, and that's our domain, do not make their way to you in the clinic, and to you in your offices. They'll make their way to the emergency room, to the patient's family doc. Access is often a little bit better, I have to be honest. And it's the presentation, it's the common skin problem probably 15, 20% of the time in the medical arena, but the non-derm arena. If they make it to us, 
it still accounts for about 10% of visits. It's that infected cyst, which really isn't a cyst. It's probably a furuncle or a carbuncle. And of all those infections, MRSA still accounts for probably about 50% to 60%. Increasing proportion compared to other infections, increasing hard numbers, probably 15 to 20 million episodes of MRSA infections in this country on an annual basis, increasing incidence and likelihood in hospitalized patients, and increasing numbers. So it's a percentage as well as the hardcore numbers. I mentioned that before. Summertime, the fall, especially in young adults and kids, and why? Because there's more of it out there in the reservoir. And we are the reservoir because of what we do, hand washing or lack thereof. We may not be that attentive. We're carrying it around. And I'll get to the colonization in a moment. OK, community-acquired infections. We've known this for about the last 30 years. Most of the trouble, most of the trouble is because of the PVL toxin, but not all. And in the outpatient arena, the definition of community-acquired MRSA infection outpatient, someone who's not in the hospital, obviously, or someone who is hospitalized and develops something within 48 hours. So that's the usual setting. So outpatient means true outpatient arena or a hospitalization within 48 hours in which you develop an infection. That's usually it. Who gets it? It's usually a young, healthy person. That means everybody in this room, right? Right? All in favor? Good. Okay, we got that. Come on, folks, it's Friday morning. I think it's Friday. Work with me. Lunch is coming, I promise. When I'm done, we go to lunch. Okay, so it's usually a young patient, and it's that, quote, hot lesion. The boil, the bump, the abscess, the furuncle, call it what you want. Anatomically, there are differences, but it's the boil, the abscess, the lump, the infected cyst, and it's usually in a young person. And that's the presentation probably three quarters of the time. Secondarily, it might just be a folliculitis, nondescript acne folliculitis, the back of the neck, the trunk. Could be cellulitis. Uh, could even be erysipelas, a little lymphatigo. But it's mainly that abscess boil. And what do people say? Oh, I think I got bitten by a spider. I don't think so. But that's what they say. I got bitten by a spider. How many spiders are roaming around your bedroom at home? I don't think very many. But doc, I got bitten by a spider. Somebody told me, I got, and that's what did this. OK, it makes a good story, good conversation, but it's usually not the explanation. So just some pictures of the way it could present. These are community-acquired MRSA infections. Uh, could be staph, maybe not resistant to methicillin, but impetigo on the lip. Little dermatitis, honeycomb crust, impetigo. You could treat this topically with a topical antibiotic, like Pyrocin. If there are other sites on the face, the trunk, you might reach for an oral antibiotic. Fine. The arm here, from a distance, little numular plaques of dermatitis. You look a little bit more closely. It's probably a little impetigenized, the honeycomb crust. So it's dermatitis, impetigo, infected dermatitis. Think of staph. Think of MRSA. Then we have this. If this was a darker complected patient, we'd call it acne keloidalis nuci, and which is not an infection. But here we have true follicles, a folliculitis on the back of the neck, hair-related, obviously, because of the location. And if you do a culture, I probably wouldn't unless it was resistant to treatment with either topical stuff, benzoyl peroxide, maybe a topical antibiotic, maybe even doxycycline for 10 days or so. I might do a culture at that point. And if the culture grew MRSA, I'd say, aha. Would I change the course a little bit? I might, 
but it's a nice example of folliculitis. Not the garden variety kind. Happens to be MRSA because that's what the, the slide is labeled as, right? Of course. Okay, good. Faruncles. This is what you usually see. Not necessarily in these locations, but the one on the penis, not bad. You wonder where he was. Okay, we won't get into it. And then we got the one on the abdomen, okay? Is it belt-related? Is that a contact dermatitis from the nickel in his belt buckle? No. Could that have started off? Sure. Makes a good story. But that's a nice, juicy furuncle, boil, abscess, infected cyst, I think not. But we can use those terms interchangeably. It's okay for today. We have this on the back of the neck. You see that? Gee, what bit you wear? Has your neck been? What's been applied? It looks a little dermatitic. It might itch. It's probably uncomfortable, but his neck is a little swollen. He's got that boil, abscess, furuncle, maybe even a carbuncle. Carbuncle is simply furuncle 2 plus. It means many hair follicles uh, affected. So that could even be a carbuncle. Kind of nondescript, no punctum. You wonder what you're dealing with. You're going to probably put on some compresses. You might treat him. I think it's a him with an antibiotic, and that would be fine. Just gives you an idea. And then we have the lift on, on, on your, your left is a picture of cellulitis, inflammatory plaque. It's probably a little warm. It's probably advancing. You can call it cellulitis. You can call it erysipelas. And then on the right, you've got cellulitis. That's the label. It's broken down. There was a blister. The blister has collapsed. But a variety of pictures of MRSA as it affects the skin, just to give you a spectrum. Risk factors for community-acquired MRSA infections. Poor hygiene. I mean, it goes without saying, but you got to say it. Some people just aren't that clean. They don't tend to their personal habits as well as you or I might do. They may not wash that frequently, shampoo that frequently, change their socks or their underwear that frequently. So it's a little bit of poor hygiene. You know, it's the teenager, I don't care. I wore those before. I'll put them on. Mom, I'm okay. But off to school he goes. Okay. Overcrowding. Where is that? Camps, uh, prisons, daycare centers. If we really get close and intimate, we could be overcrowded in here, too. Come on, folks. Let's go. Okay. Trauma, shaving, men and women. I mean, women, God, under the arms, the legs, the whole bit. I don't know. Sometimes you don't need to do that, but guys do. So now guys are doing here, up top, and they're shaving their backs, their chests, and their groins. I don't know what that's all about. So shaving can kind of set the... For the ladies in the group, you have to know that. And I love the guys who come in, you know, they, I do a full exam, and they've shaved their chest and their pubic area. And why did you do that? Just let it go. You're a guy. You're allowed to let it go. Well, my girlfriend or my partner likes it that way. Okay. Whatever. You got hair, let it go. And if you don't have it, deal with it. Okay. Other situations, close contact with others, draining lesions like those ulcers I showed. You don't want to get close and intimate with that. You don't want to start fingering it without gloves, shared equipment, animals. Animals can harbor staph. Animals can harbor methicillin-resistant staph. So if you get a little close and cuddly with the kitten at home, the dog at home, they share the bed, they sleep on you, whatever and they've got some crud, they may give their crud to you. Just keep that in mind. So it's close, intimate contact, but usually a young person. The main risk factor is colonization. We harbor it on our skin, and it takes hold. And where do we harbor it? Around the schnoz. The anterior nares. Why is it just the anterior nares? 
bless you. Why is it just the anterior? Why isn't it the posterior nares or the mouth? Come on, we all know. The anterior nares is as far as your finger can go as it's prodding around. Come on, right? We, I mean, come on. You got a free hair, you pick your nose, you scratch your nose, whatever, nobody's looking, you didn't think anybody was looking, but the driver in the car alongside of you saw you do that, okay? <laughs> saw you do that, and I, even the ladies, you gotta know that, okay? So it's the anterior nares, but where else? Could be the pits, could be the groin, could be the interdigital spaces of the feet. Just keep that in mind. And the main reason you get it is skin to skin, skin to surface contact, but a lot of folks have no risk factors. They're not in overcrowded positions, uh, positions or uh, places. Uh, they don't pick their nose. They don't have much colonization, so they're okay. But look at this. 90 million folks, that's almost one-third of the population, are colonized with Staph aureus. That's a lot of people. That's Staph aureus. Okay? Three million, and this is on the low side. Most ID people think the percent is as high as 5 or 10% are colonized with MRSA. So from the get-go, 5 to 10% of the population are walking around with it, is walking around with it right now. In this room, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of people who are walking around with MRSA. So at the lunch break, go to your room, get some soap and water, rub it around, go under the arms. You'll be a little cleaner for lunch as you sit down with your friends and colleagues. Come on, folks. Okay. <laughs> outbreaks. Where do you break out with this? Where, where are the outbreaks seen? They're seen in the same centers. Sports teams, camps, daycare centers, closed religious groups. There have been reports of that, groups that just don't get out into the community. Military personnel, enlisted as well as officers, etc. It happens. Prison guards and inmates, and I'm not implying anything. It's just close quarters, close confines, overcrowding, etc. Drug users, absolutely. Men having sex with men, absolutely. Tattoo recipients, to a degree. And then following the two recent uh, hurricanes, Katrina in New Orleans and Sandy on the East Coast, there was a proliferation of MRSA infections that made their way to emergency rooms, internists, and family docs. Just keep that in mind. Certain groups also. Obviously, young, healthy people. That means children, young adults, everybody in this audience. Ethnic minorities, a little bit more so than white-skinned folks. There's no other way to say it. A little bit more common in lower social and economic groups and, very, and now becoming more common in folks who work with animals. This could be at a veterinary clinic, uh, a shelter for animals, pretty much of a problem there. Uh, if you've got a lot of pets and a lot of cats at home, we read about you in the paper a few days later, 30 cats all over the place, and the environmental hazards you already know. Pictures. So these are the juicy furuncles, folliculitis, but I would call this at least a furuncle, a boil, an abscess. You could call this a bug bite uh, or a puncture wound of some sort from the yard, etc. But you're not going to call that this. This is a juicy boil, furuncle, abscess. Those words are okay. For today's discussion, those are okay. And you know you want to do something here. And you might be tempted to prescribe an antibiotic, but you don't need to, and I'll get to that in a moment. Just giving you a panoply of some pictures, some presentations. Here's an individual. Looks like a plaque of dermatitis up top until you look at the chest and you say, gee, it's a little infected, folliculitis. He's got a plaque, no cellulitis. It's a furuncle, so he's got two I'm showing here. He probably has three or four more. He's probably a hairy guy. 
He may not change his clothes that often. He may sweat a lot. He may play sports, etc., etc. So he's got a staph folliculitis, a staph furunculosis, two obvious spots. Then we have cellulitis, bullous variety, breakdown of the blister, nice raw denuded skin underneath. Doesn't look like much. Topical care might be all you need. I might do a little bit more. And on the right side, a bit nondescript, much like the first one I showed in this series, a central punctum, little surrounding redness, maybe a bite, maybe it's inflamed, not infected. Doesn't look like much, but it's just giving you an idea of what this can look like in the skin. Here's something very nondescript. Looks like an abrasion. Uh, looks like the skin was roughed up, traumatized, a friction blister. It's eroded a bit. But actually, if you did a culture here, you would. I happen to know. This is somebody I saw. It grew MRSA after the fact. So it was a simple bit of trauma, uh, an accident, so to speak, tension, friction, and it broke down and became infected. And then we have this. Uh, a big, not quite an ulcer, a big erosion, uh, a little discolored, probably stinks a little bit, so it's poly, probably polymicrobial, but MRSA may have driven the infection. But just to give you a range of what you can see on the skin. Okay, what to do? If you're the PA, the doc, the attendant, the resident, the medical student, and you see what looks like a community-acquired MRSA infection. What, you're not, not going to be that specific. You're going to see a boil, uh, an abscess, a furuncle. What do you do? Patient's healthy, no fever, no cellulitis, no aches and pains, no comorbidities, healthy otherwise, comes in and looks like this. You're going to sharpen your scalpel or take a clean one. You're going to puncture it. You're going to drain it. You're going to pack it or not pack it, and you're going to send that patient home with clear conscience. No prescription. No antibiotics. Again, simple incision and drainage, no prescription, no antibiotics. Now, you know, you take things into play a little bit. But that's all that's needed 90-plus percent of the time. In size, drain. You want to pack it with iodoform? Fine. You want to close it with stitches? I don't think you want to do that. You could keep it open, and if you don't find the punctum to do an incision and drainage, but you know it's there, instead of prodding and poking and creating more havoc than you need to, you can tell that patient to go home and simply compress it. What do you do? It's a washcloth, immerse it in some lukewarm water, fold it once, twice, let it sit over the area. It'll feel good. It'll bring it to a head, so to speak. Do that two, three, four times a day, and that's your incision, that's your drainage. But if you can, take that scalpel, poke it in, back off, cover up, wear a mask, turn up your collar, keep the walls clean uh, so it doesn't spurt, and life goes on. Now, there are some situations where you need more than simply incision and drainage. You need an antibiotic. If it's a big lesion, a big frog, like that second one I showed, that big goober on the forearm, you might want to think about it. If there's fever, cellulitis, if it's a tough location, the mid part of the face, the groin, the hand, uh, you might want an antibiotic. If, there are, if the patient is showing extremes of age, I said it's mainly young people, well, maybe you got an old person, or maybe you got a young kid, you know, three, four, five, you might want to do that. Uh, if there are comorbidities, the diabetic, the cancer patient, you're going to jump in with an antibiotic. I think that's good medicine. That's good practice. So you've got to at least be aware of that. But nine times out of ten, incision drainage, even for something like this, 
is probably all you need. That one I might do a little something extra for. And obviously, if the treatment has failed, jump in with something. Uh, where are we? So here are some examples. Simple IND on the left. The foot, little tough, but certainly the one on the fanny. It's around the anus. You might want to use an antibiotic there simply because of anal cleansing. It's liable to get contaminated if he's not careful, et cetera. He's already going to be doctoring the area, so you might want to do it, but simple IND. And here's a tough spot. Here's a furuncle, so to speak, the mid part of the face. You can drain this a little bit, nick it, allow it to drain. Here I'd use an antibiotic. Around the orbit, you definitely need it. So what do you choose as far as an antibiotic if you need one? There are three choices. In no particular order, but my first one would probably be doxycycline. Number two would be trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole. And number three would be clindamycin. So this is not an order, but I would choose doxycycline first. Some of our ID colleagues might jump in with rifampin occasionally, but rifampin should never be used by itself. So these are the drugs in an outpatient arena. Regarding TMP, SMX, good availability. It's cheap. It works in vitro. Uh, doesn't work very well against strep. Risks, eh, some HIV patients don't do well. They can sometimes react and get a, an extended drug reaction from it. If they're taking methotrexate, you're going to ask about other drugs anyway. Not a good idea. Complications, some photosensitivity, kind of a measles-like rash with some of them, and some people get some GI distress, but not much more than that. So it's safe, has good bioavailability, it's cheap, it's a drug we should not be hesitant about using. Do I use this drug? Absolutely, and I'm not afraid of using it because of the drug rash, et cetera. It works. It could even be used in acne. We don't do that very much but it's a good choice. Tetracyclines, doxycycline, good bioavailability, reasonably cheap, but not always the case. Good tissue penetration. Uh, emerging resistance is the caveat here. I think too many of us are using it too often, so we're encountering resistance to it. But it works well. Got to adjust it with renal disease. If someone has end-stage renal disease, there is some photosensitivity, primarily with doxycycline, impaired absorption with some drugs. Uh, complications, few and far between. It's mainly with minocycline. It's the hyperpigmentation, the skin and nails, and usually that's with long-term use. And if you use minocycline for MRSA infection, you're only going to use it for a short while, a week, 10 days, two weeks tops. Sometimes it upsets the gut. Most of the times it doesn't. Clindamycin. Bullet number three is the most important one. Bullet number three. It's becoming more, it's a drug that is encountering more resistance, but it depends on where you live. Uh, in my area, it's okay. Certain parts of the South, resistance is increasing. So you need to be aware of your community. Uh, if you've got a heavy, uh, heavy presence of clindamycin resistance, pick another drug. Pick another drug. If you're in an area where the resistance is low, it's a good choice. It really is. Pediatricians like this drug more so than the rest of us. I think it's a good choice. Risk precautions, no big deal. It interacts a little bit with erythromycin. You're not going to be doing both at the same time. And most of us are worried about that GI distress, the colitis, the pseudomembranous colitis and the diarrhea. doesn't occur very often. It only occurs if you're giving it for a long while. You're not going to be doing that. So it's a good drug. Now we get... Now we get some interesting things from the literature. From the New England Journal, just last year, big study looking at those two drugs, clindamycin 
versus trimethoprine sulfamethoxazole. More than 500 patients who had uncomplicated skin infections. Well, if they were so uncomplicated, why did they need antibiotics? Because 30% of them probably didn't need them. They simply had abscesses, which could have been incised and drained, et cetera. But half of them had cellulitis, fine. They probably had a little fever. So this was a nice study looking at a big population of patients, skin and soft tissue infections, categorized as such, who received one or the other antibiotic. If they had an abscess, it was incised and drained and then followed with that antibiotic. And what did they find? They found equal efficacy, equal effectiveness with clindamycin and trimethoprim sulfamethoxyl. They both worked equally, which is kind of reinforcing the statement that these are still two good drugs. We think of doxy first, but clindamycin and trimethoprim, not bad at all. Good effect, good efficacy with both, and adverse side reactions, almost nil. None of that photosensitivity, drug rash with trimethoprim, no uh, resistance to clindamycin. I mean, it worked well in over 500 patients. So this is proof that you can lean on one of these two drugs besides doxycycline for the uncomplicated infection. Then we have this from the New England Journal this year. Now this, in my opinion, even though it's the New England Journal, did not help matters. This was a study of over 1,200 patients who had uncomplicated skin abscesses. And what did these folks do? Well, they gave them trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole as treatment versus placebo. I'm going to assume that IND was done in most of them. So probably all that 1,000 of these patients needed was simple IND and send them to the parking lot, nothing more. But instead, they entered the study. It was an ER study. And they got either one drug or placebo. And they found that the cure rate was pretty good with both, a little bit better with the antibiotic. So is this proof now that we, is this evidence now that we need to prescribe an antibiotic for uncomplicated abscesses, uncomplicated skin disease? No, but it's the New England Journal. We have to acknowledge it. I'm including it here just to be complete. But I'm a little skeptical. OK, invasive disease. Skin disease has just sort of taken hold. The upper left-hand corner, you can see that just doesn't look right. It's cellulitis. He's got blisters. He's probably in the hospital. He needs something. Cellulitis around the butt and that big juicy one on the knee, you wonder how far down it's going. So these folks probably deserve hospitalization and an antibiotic. So what are the preferred antibiotics in the hospital setting? Not those first three I mentioned. Uh, 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 uh. In the hospital setting, your ID colleagues, the internists, you, will hopefully reach for vancomycin. Vancomycin is still the workhorse, the workhorse for uh, suspected staph infections, uh, despite its likelihood of, or the, the small likelihood of neutropenia and even the rash. Uh, vancomycin remains, I think, the drug of choice. Daptomycin, linazolid, also there. Quinopristin, dalfopristin, about 15 years old, also play a part. Vancomycin, you pick it no matter what. You do it empirically. And if you know after a fact that it's not methicillin-resistant, you can then switch off to oxacillin or uh, nafcillin. That's fine. The drawbacks is it works, but it works slowly. It takes time. You've got to be patient. There might be a relapse leukopenia, there is a relapse bacteremia, there is a leukopenia and the rash, as I mentioned. And then there's the creep. The creep is basically a way of describing folks who don't get better, so the doc gives more of the vancomycin, a little bit more, to reach that sensitivity rate, and the patient ends up getting more than he or she really needs, and then they get toxic from the 
I won't say overdose, but the excessive amount of medication. Daptomycin, it's a cyclic lipopeptide. You're not going to use it, but you might encounter patients with it. It's a nice alternative to vancomycin in the hospital setting. It's given um, intravenously. It's not something we're going to prescribe very often, but I want you to be aware of it. Uh, Tigacycline is an offshoot of tetracycline. It's a glycosiline. It's got a place in the hospital. It's given intravenously as well every 12 hours. It's a safe drug, good for MRSA and vancomycin-resistant infections. Side effects are rather notorious, mainly the GI tract. Nausea, the heaves, the runs. Uh, people don't handle it very well. Linazolid is an attractive drug. It's a new category of drugs. There's another one out now I'll get to later. It's an oxazolinidone, uh, and you can use this in the hospital setting intravenously, and as the patient gets better, you can switch to the PO route. So you can continue the antibiotic, but get that person out of the hospital. They go home with the same drug, but in PO form. It fills a niche. It's expensive, but it's good against MRSA, hospital-acquired pneumonia, community-acquired pneumonia, et cetera. A good drug and attractive because you can convert. This is a very expensive drug, Synersid. It's still being used. Most hospital pharmacies, you need to get approval for this. The main side effect here is a phlebitis because it must be given through a central line, uh, not through a peripheral line. So it's given intravenously. Okay, new antibiotics. Now, most of the drug companies, they're all in the exhibit hall. Most of those are not antibiotic companies. Most drug companies don't leap at the opportunity of developing antibiotics because there's not much bang for the buck. If they develop a new drug, a lot of money, a lot of time goes into it, and then you and I prescribe it for a week, two weeks, maybe a month, and then the benefit financially disappears. Now, I'm not being critical. I'm just being honest. There's more money to biologics and things that are prescribed for arthritis, long-term basis, et cetera. For that reason, I really believe it's an overriding reason, there aren't that many new antibiotics. In the last 10 years, there are probably three or four uh, tops, tops. Uh, new antibiotics that I'm going to share with you. One is a cephalosporin. You probably won't prescribe it. It's about five years old. It's good for MRSA, community-acquired pneumonia. It's a cephalosporin given intravenously, so you're not going to do this, but you will encounter patients in the hospital. But it's the newest of the cephalosporin, so just be aware. Then I come to these three. These three are nice. Oritavansin, Dalbavancin and tadizolid. Tadizolid is sort of a cousin of linazolid. It's another oxazolidone, so now there are two on the market. But I'm going to cover these three just in two slides, no, no more than that. Um, and I can read the grid here. The binding of, of the first two cell wall precursors, tadizolone, ribosomal subunit, blah, blah, blah. What I'd like you to focus on is the lower left-hand column, that 245, 150, et cetera. That's the half-life. That's ours. 245 hours, whoa, that's a long time. You can give a pill or give an ingestion. You can, in, in, you can provide, you can administer the drug, and it lasts 10 days. That's the attraction. That's the attraction. So these are three of the newest antibiotics. They're all in, two are purely intravenous routes. One is intravenous, and then it can be converted to the PO route. It's the cousin of linazolid. So they're good. Now, one by one. Aritavancin. Very good efficacy against MRSA, MSSA, and Clostridia difficile, a real problem in the hospital. One dose, one dose intravenously, $3,500, one dose. Bingo, that's going to break somebody's wallet. 
drug number two, dalbavancin. Two doses, IV now, IV later, $3,000 for the first dose, $1,500 for the second. So this one is $4,500, two doses. Try to get approval for this on a regular basis in the hospital. Not going to happen. Tadazolid, that's the uh, cousin of linazolid. can be given IV or PO. The cost of giving it IV, $1,600. Cost of giving it PO, $2,000. Deep breath, deep sigh. This is, not, this is not cheap medicine. Is there a place for these drugs? Sure there is. But it's probably for those folks who can't tolerate or are sensitive to the other drugs that are more commonly available, et cetera. But they're out there. They're ready to be used. Most hospital pharmacies, I would think in my place, you need approval for this. Prove you need it. Justify the use of them. I'm just sharing them with you because they're the newest kids on the block. Then we have an antibiotic from DIRT, Tecobactin. This is something that has just been found, but is basically drug from DIRT, from cranberry mosses. I don't forget, Massachusetts, North Carolina, whatever. But it works against gram-positive organisms in mice, and it works because of some new technology called iChip technology. Blocks the cell wall synthesis, et cetera. I don't know how the hell it works, but it works. And the likelihood of resistance at the moment is about zero. This will probably enter patient studies in the next few years. We might see something with this in the next five to 10 years. This is the future, and at the moment, no side effects. So this looks promising. No resistance from dirt? Come on. I mean, if we can get anything from dirt today except, you know, uh, carrots and celery, we're doing pretty well. Then there's a new topical antibiotic, relatively new. It's been out about 10 years. Uh, it's a pamulin, developed based on three studies against infected dermatoses, uh, infected traumatic wounds, you know, abrasion, stuff like that, and against impetigo. Hundreds of patients in each group, FDA approved it, and it is ready for use, has been for 10 years. Its use isn't that great, but we needed another topical antibiotic because mupiracin was developed in the early 1980s, mid-1980s. Still a good antibiotic, but increasing resistance with that, so we need this. This works against MRSA, but it is not approved for MRSA infection. So it's something to think about in other situations, but not specifically MRSA. And you can use it in someone as young as nine months of age. Fusidic acid, what the hell is that? It's not available in the States. It's available in Canada and in Europe. This is a topical antibiotic with steroid-like activity. It's often used in conjunction with topical corticosteroids for kids with infected eczema, et cetera. Works very well. Studies have shown it's very effective against MRSA infection. We need it here. Okay, let's go back to MRSA and look how we can prevent it. How do you prevent it? You stay clean, you educate people, you try to prevent it with good wound care, good personal hygiene, regular bathing habits, you change your clothes, you wash your hands, you use those alcohol wipes and scrubs, you launder your clothes, don't reuse things. If it smells, if it gets some sweat, throw it in the hamper, down to the laundry, start with something fresh. All good common sense, but not always employed. Environmental measures, well, what do you do there? Watch high-touch surfaces. You don't got to be fastidious and crazy about it. You know, you don't have to put on gloves to shake hands with people, but you just need to be aware. Just use your head is what it comes down to. And we as medical folks use, need to use our heads probably more so to set a good example for patients, family members, etc. Household members, especially if you're in a family with a lot of people, kids are playing sports, 
They're leaving their clothes all over the place. They're not changing. They're not bathing. It's the teenage thing. Okay, I'm not blaming them. Be aware of pets as well. Sexual partners. Sex is good, but watch what you're partners or how they look or what they're doing. I don't know. Here we go. Decolonization, not a bad idea if you're really pushed to it, meaning you've got chronic recurrent MRSA infections. You want to think about decolonizing your skin to some extent. And how do you do that? You can do it, do it around the mouth, the, around the, mouth, the, the nose, the, the anterior nares, and you can do it with mupiracin. Twice a day, three times a day, do it for a week, five days is all you need, and you decrease the carriage rate by about 50, 60%. Not bad. Then you can decolonize the body. Oh, sure. Hop in the tub. Uh, you can use chlorhexidine, that's Hippocleanse. You can use it, you can take a bath in it. We use it for hydradenitis a lot in the underarms, the groin, around the fanny, etc. You can use Dakin solution, triclosan. There are lots of chemicals out there that you can clean yourself with, but you don't need to do it. I don't need to do it. But if you're in a household where it's a problem or if you have chronic recurrent infections, it's a good idea. If topical care doesn't work very well, you can go the route of the pill. You can use clindamycin or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole for a week or 10 days, and the latter sometimes with rifampin, and you can decrease carriage by about 80%. That's good. So if you've got somebody who has chronic colonization, who's a, who harbors the organism, You've gone the topical route repeatedly, concertedly, uh, and you think the patient's actually kicking in, and you're not making much headway. They're still getting infections. You can go the route of the, 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 route of, uh, the PO route. And where? Remember, it's the nose, but it's also the underarms, the groin, the fanny, and even in between the toe spaces. What's new with MRSA infections? There are some quick tests. Uh, there are three that I'm aware of. The ones that I like are the second two especially the last one, where you can find an answer using standard culture media. Standard culture media. Whatever your clinic has, whatever the hospital has, you do a standard culture off to the lab. They can tell you within three, four hours whether you're dealing with MSSA, methicillin-sensitive antibiotics, that's easier, or MRSA, and then you can take a tack if that patient needs an antibiotic. You're not going to do it just for the hell of it, but you can get a quick answer. And then there's smoking. Smoking is clearly becoming a risk factor for MRSA infections. It is increasing an individual's susceptibility to such infections. You can kind of theorize it, smoke, etc., blah, blah, blah. But smoking clearly also decreases macrophage killing ability if you do get an infection. So smoking, I said it the first hour, only about 20% of the population. I don't believe that. I think it's more. That's my own take. I'm not a smoker, but I seem to be surrounded by them, and I'm not paranoid. It just seems that way. It doesn't seem that way when you're out. Wherever it is, they're congregating around you. Uh, maybe not. Okay. So smoking, don't do it. Okay. I throw this in as an addition. Uh, cellulitis. We know that there's no such thing as cellulitis of both legs, right? Cellulitis is unilateral, but it's often on the leg. But you get the hospital call. You know, it's the patient with a dermatitis on the legs. Come see the patient with cellulitis, both legs. No. But cellulitis does occur in diabetics, with people with venous insufficiency, ulcers, etc., And it's a problem what to do. This was a nice study from the New England Journal two years ago. Double-blind, randomized study. Almost 30 hospitals in Ireland and the UK looked at giving such patients with that problem penicillin versus nothing to see what would happen as far as recurrence is concerned. I'm ignoring the clock just for you guys in the back. It says a minute, but what the hell. Uh, and what they found is this group of 500 patients what they looked at was how long it would take before the first recurrence. 
And the people that received penicillin was 250 milligrams twice a day, not once a day. So I correct this, I was twice a day. Uh, time to first recurrence was over 600 days compared to just over 500 days for the folks who took placebo. Those who took penicillin, the likelihood of any recurrence was only about 20% versus almost 40% who took the placebo. So fewer recurrences with penicillin. Penicillin still has a place in the treatment, the prevention of cellulitis. It's cheap, it's cheap, it's effective, and we shouldn't shy away from it. So very safe, uh, efficacious, but as soon as the penicillin decreased, the penicillin patient became the placebo patient. The recurrences kicked in at the regular rate as they were before. No downside at all. So what are the key points as a wrap-up? It's a global problem. It's in your backyard, my backyard. It's in our country. It's in the Americas. It's around the world. So just be aware. Increasing numbers in the community, whether it's hospitals or the uh, outpatient arena. Primary transmission is skin to skin. You know, so none of this elbow stuff. You gotta, you gotta touch, but you gotta be sure your hand is clean, and that other person's hand is clean. I think in the in the clinic or the office setting, I I spritz and do that before you encounter patients. But you gotta think: Did the patient do that? You know, so is the patient gonna give me something? I don't know. Yeah, if it's good for us, it should be good for the patients. We should tell them: Hey, you spritz your hands before we go in. The usual presentation: boils, abscesses. Furuncles, it falls in our domain, the dermatologic domain. Mainly Staph aureus, particularly MRSA, and it's that PVL toxin that's producing most of it. Antibiotics, be thoughtful in the use. Most of the time, you do not need them. Sometimes you do. Here, on the left, you probably don't. On the right, you probably don't need an antibiotic. In size, drain, compress, probably do just fine. The mainstay of treatment, Still, incision drainage. Do a culture, that's okay. Do one of the quick tests, you'll find out the organism. If parental treatment, trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, clindamycin, probably doxycycline first. If it's the hospitalized patient, think vancomycin first, daptomycin maybe second, linazolid maybe third, recurrent disease, decolonization, and emphasis on hand washing, hand washing, and more hand washing. Spots like this, incision and drainage for the shoulder, probably all you need. If you want to read into that and say, gee, it's cellulitis. If I'm with a resident, the resident wants to push an antibiotic, I can say, hey, let's just see how it goes. Let's incise. We'll keep the walls clean. Probably do well without an antibiotic. But it looks like an expanding rim on the right. I might, maybe on the left too, sitting on the toilet seat, wiping the butt, etc. cetera. Uh, so there are many faces of community-acquired MRSA infection. They're all in our domain. As good clinicians, good PAs, we're in the dermatologic arena. We're going to see it. Just be aware. And hopefully, in the last 40 minutes or so, I've shared with you about how to think about it, how to approach it, and what to do if you encounter. And lastly, lastly, if everything we talked about, everything I talked I was doing talking. If everything I talked about doesn't work, it all failed. You say, well, that's what Tameki said. What do we do? Start again. Just start again, do the same thing, make sure you do a culture. See what you're dealing with. If you needed an antibiotic, maybe you picked the wrong one, or maybe the doc did, or maybe your supervisor did. So maybe you need another one. Maybe instead of augmentin or erythromycin or uh, cephalexin, keflin, you need doxycycline, trimethoprim. Consider another diagnosis. Now, that's something we all should do once in a while. 
Sometimes if it looks like this, if it looks like something and it smells like something, sometimes it is, and occasionally it isn't. And then don't be too proud that you can't call for help. Either a dermatologist, an ID guy, an internist, etc. Never hurts. That is the end. I went a little over, but there is lunch. I thank you for your time and attention. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.